0: This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Sineos Health, a new fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization, a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Synios Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit synioshealthcom podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Wednesday, October the 17th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I'm joined by healthcare specialist, expert, and all-around good guy, Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you?
1: I'm great. I'm sad that I'm not in Alexandria at HQ to film with you in yes. person live like last week that was so much fun.
0: It was perfect. Um, I loved having all of you guys here and for our listeners if you did not have a chance to check out that show, we did a marijuana roundtable last week. I got all the guys here in the studio. We talked about which is, you know, prime for today. Today is Green Day in Canada. Marijuana is now legal from an adult use recreational perspective. Um, so, we were able to talk about that, the implications of that, what to look for. And, two, if you want to keep track, I'm going to put a quick plug in here, Todd. Uh, if you want to keep track of all of the news, all of the industry insights, we've actually put together a, a page specifically for you. If you just go to www.full.com/slash marijuana dash or hyphen stocks. That's again that's www.fool.com slash marijuana hyphen stocks. Be sure to check it out. We will keep you up to date on all the latest. Uh, But turning our attention to some other good news in the sector this week on the healthcare front, Todd, we're talking earnings. And you got the special opportunity to interview uh, management behind one of probably the most followed companies in the Nash market, Genfit. So We'll get into all of that, but let's actually start with the big behemoth in the room. Johnson & Johnson just reported earnings here on Tuesday. This is the dividend aristocrat, the steady Eddie, all around, just good company to buy and hold for the long term. And that's ticker symbol J&J for our listeners there, for Johnson & Johnson. Stock was up about 2% off of earnings yesterday, Todd. What can you tell us about what they reported on?
1: Yeah, and up again a little bit today. When I looked earlier on, Shannon, this is a, a giant among Goliaths, right? I mean, this is this is just crazy how big this company is. Every every quarter, when I track it, because so many of our listeners, you know, own it somewhere. And even if you don't think you own it, you probably do because it's going to be in <laughs> exactly. ETFs and mutual funds. Uh, revenue in the quarter clocked in at twenty point three billion. Yes, that's with a B billion. Twenty point three billion. And that was up 3.6% year over year. Uh, they, for people who are newer to the story, they have operate their business in three different segments. They've got a consumer goods segment. They've got a pharmaceutical segment, and they've got a medical devices segment. But by far, Shannon, it's the pharmaceuticals business that drives the car. That is J and J.
0: Yeah, and before we get to the pharmaceutical segment, it's interesting uh, for those that have been following Johnson and Johnson. Everybody is probably familiar on the consumer business side. You're thinking about Band-Aid. You're thinking about Tylenol, and also too, their really iconic baby care line um, has really kind of gotten back into the spotlight as of recent. Um, So. If you look at over the past few years, their consumer business segment has actually been declining in sales. Um, a little bit earlier this year, may have even been this quarter, the company decided to relaunch their baby care line, and it was really targeting um, those millennial parents. So, getting rid of dyes and ingredients that really. Many millennial parents just don't want to see the sulfates. Also, um, they also did some repackaging, so it was really interesting. Of the three segments, you actually started to see them turn a corner. And Todd, you mentioned you know of the three segments, pharmaceuticals really is the revenue driver for them. But you actually saw on the consumer side sales of 3.4 billion, which were up about 1.8% year over year.
1: Right. And like you said, this, I mean, people aren't going to get overly excited about, you know, 2% growth. But I mean, compared to what we've seen in the past, this has been a, a business that basically just cranks out uh, cash flow every quarter and hasn't been overly exciting um, when it comes to, to growth rates. We also saw some strength in the consumer business out of the beauty care uh, products, which I think grew like 4%, something like that, year over year. Medical devices also, not a huge. Um, Growth driver for the company. As a matter of fact, their sales in the quarter year-over-year year, were relatively flat. That was down. Uh, that was because of um, um, them getting out of some diabetes businesses last year. Those sales clocked in about 6.6 6 billion. So you've got medical devices giving you 6.6 6 billion. You've got consumer giving you 3.4 billion. That leaves you about 10 billion more, which of course comes from the pharmaceutical side of the business.
0: Yeah, so really, focus here is on the pharmaceutical side, also known as Janssen. So, um, really, we're able to now, pharmaceuticals is about 50% of revenue for the company. Um, And two, what's so interesting, and I know we'll get into this a little bit more, is one of the bigger concerns has been with J&J's drug, Remicade. Um, you started to see some big numbers happen with the biosimilar Inflectra um, that was released earlier, and now you're starting to see the impact of that. But on the flip side of that, they actually had some good positive news in their oncology portfolio.
1: Right. Remicade is kind of the big question mark for investors currently because, again, like you said, Pfizer lodged out their biosimilar, I think back in 2017. And of course, Johnson and Johnson, in a bid to keep their market share, has cut 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 their prices on Remicade. And I want to say that during the conference call, J and J's management said that those cost those price cuts have allowed it to maintain about 93% market share when it comes to volume. So yes, you're you're still they're the dominant. You know they're they're providing a lot more in terms of. of volume that you might expect versus having this new biosimilar on the market, but it did take a toll on sales. Sales fell 16% year over year. Uh, still clocking in though around 1.4 billion. And I think that the strategy here has been let's mitigate uh, or slow the pace of decline, the rate of decline for Remicade by doing these things to hold on to market share. So far, it seems to be work because as we already talked about, uh, they were able to deliver top line growth year over year in the quarter despite. That Remicade headwind.
0: Yeah, and for our listeners that are not familiar, um, biosimilars are really what you would consider the generic equivalents of some of these brand name pharmaceuticals. Um, Not a true. uh, identical comparison but very close and um, oftentimes there's the interchangeability factor that you want to look at with biosimilars um, so shifting gears you've got the oncology portfolio which I think you know as we talk about big pharma and even big biotech you know oncology is still one of the hottest areas in the market to invest in saw some really impressive numbers particularly with their block Buster darzalek and also to in I was actually quite impressed with their double-digit growth this past quarter
1: yeah I think what's really something that investors have to pay attention to with J and is is the oncology franchise I mean yes they're involved they've got some great drugs that treat central nervous system disorders Stellara has been you know growing its sales by double digits following a label expansion to include its use in Crohn's disease patients but really it's been oncology that's allowed them to kind of offset some of the loss of exclusives exclusivity that's associated with patent expiration and if you look at the oncology sales last quarter they grew 36% year over year to 2.6 billion and a lot of that growth was because of Darzalex their multiple myeloma drug that drug um, has been winning, you know. Increased use as trials have allowed it to expand its label into earlier lines of therapy, and you know, obviously, the earlier that it gets used in therapy, the larger addressable patient population and the greater potential to turn that uh, increasing use into into revenue growth. I think they did 498 million, so that gives it almost a two billion run rate. Last quarter, and that was up 57% year over year. And then you mentioned Imbravica, and you mentioned, um, I think you might have also mentioned Zytiga. Those are the other two that you really have to watch here in cancer. Imbravica, which is a blood cancer drug, sales there grew 38% to about 700 million. So, again, 2.8 billion run rate. And Zytiga, which is their top selling prostate cancer drug, and we should talk about Zytiga later on uh, when we talk about patent risks. But Zytiga, uh, sales grew 43 percent year over year to almost a billion, 958 million in the quarter. So you're talking about almost a four billion dollar drug there.
0: Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Uh, really impressive growth all across the board for the pharmaceutical segment. Um, looking uh, ahead, though. There are a few key areas that I think investors do need to be mindful of when it comes to j Great quarter, love to see the growth that's happening, but there are actually some key decisions coming up, one being a potentially new product for depression. Todd, what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, it's a nasal spray. It's esketamine. They did five phase three trials. I think three were three were good. Two really weren't great on the primary endpoint. But I think that there's a there. It has a good shot at getting approved, and and that could be uh, a nine figure. you know, drug for the company, so hundreds of millions of dollars in potential sales revenue there. They also have an FDA decision for ertafetinib which is a locally advanced and metastatic easy for me to say—cancer <laughs> drug. Um, if that gets approved, that would also help their um, their oncology franchise. It's very important, Shannon, for these FDA approvals uh, for J&J to win new FDA approvals and and continue to to grow sales. Because one of the things I mentioned just a second ago was Zytiga is a concern. Um, you've got Remicade, and you know obviously they're executing a good strategy to protect the Remicade sales. Zytiga, however, had a patent thrown out early in 2018. And as a result, there is the chance that you could get Zytiga generics on the marketplace in 2019. J&J isn't issuing 2019 guidance yet, uh, they're going to do that. You know, later on this year, probably after the fourth quarter wraps up, maybe at um, at an industry conference in January. Um, But that is that is a concern, especially since you're talking about four billion in sales. So you're going to want to pay attention to. There's a patent. uh, There's a court decision coming up. You're going to want to pay attention to see how that court decision goes. Then you're going to want to watch and see what the uh, what the guidance is for 2019. You'll also want to keep an eye on what happens with Zoralto. Now, Zoralto is an interesting drug. It's a blood thinner. It's very heavily used, but the sales have kind of flattened out. Last year, last quarter, they were 612 million, down about 4%. There's a lot of competition that's emerged in this area. Um, they just got a new approval, however, so you're going to want to see whether or not that kind of kickstart sales gets it back to growth in 2019. And then, as far as guidance is concerned, Shan, I think they're looking now for 81 billion, <laughs> just mind-boggling, <laughs> 81 billion in full-year sales this year, and full-year earnings per share of about eight dollars and thirteen cents to eight dollars and eighteen cents
0: yeah so so many good things to watch I'll also too this is much further down the line but also to um, J and J announced the licensing deal with Arrowhead as well for gene silencing in hepatitis B again that'll be further down the road but will be worth watching that was a deal potentially worth up to 3.7 billion again hep B hep C huge market competitive market but it'll be really interesting to watch What happens there? Um, Let's turn our attention to another behemoth, um, another healthcare giant, and that's United Health Group, ticker symbol UNH. Todd, this is the largest health insurer. overall. Um, And also, too, they reported earnings on Tuesday hitting near-record highs above $272 a share. This stock has been on an absolute tear this year and really over the past few years. And really, this quarter was another quarter to, again, be impressed.
1: If you thought J and J was big, wait until you hear these numbers, right Shannon? Yes. <laughs> yeah okay, so last quarter, United Healthcare, as you mentioned, biggest insurer, 56.56 billion in revenue uh, last quarter. so you know well over 200 billion annualized run rate. and that was up 12.4% year over year. Most people think of United Health they think of the health insurance business. And certainly, that's that's a big, you know, gives them most of their sales. But they also operate a data analytics business and a pharmacy benefit management business, and that's under their Optum brand. So, you know, when we're looking at sales and considering, you know, an investment United Healthcare, you want to not only consider the health insurance market, but you want to consider, um, you know, kind of how people are going to be using data in designing treatment programs, how um, intervention by health insurers may help people stick to their courses of therapy and stay on their medication, avoid hospitalizations, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think it's the data and the analytics side with that opt in brand that really has me intrigued um, as someone who's in the healthcare space because when you can leverage artificial intelligence, machine learning, now into these insights that physicians and patients can use to really tailor and personalize care. Now you're really talking about a whole new revolutionary way to tackle Many of healthcare's biggest problems, and so I love their their Optum brand. Uh, will be a key area to watch. But really, for United Health, it really comes down their biggest revenue drivers. I mean, you've got the Optum brand, but you've also got, of course, the employer sponsored plans and also Medicare Advantage as well. This quarter showed some really impressive growth in those areas. Um, just on a numbers basis, they serve 2.8 million more consumers. In the third quarter, Todd, that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, and a lot of that is obviously Medicare and Medicaid, which I think are probably the two biggest pieces or most important pieces of the health insurance business to track at United Healthcare going forward. They, um, you know, one of the things that when you're looking at insurers, you always want to keep an eye on the medical cost ratio, which is the MCR. Um, They sometimes different insurers will call it something slightly different, but it's essentially how much of the premiums that they're collecting are spent back out on. Uh, patient care. So you hear those huge revenue numbers. That's the gross premiums that they're collecting. Uh, plus, in the case of United Healthcare Optum, and then of course you've got to take you got to consider that they're putting out a lot of that money in premiums back into patient care. Last quarter that improved to 81%, so it was down 40 basis points year over year, and that makes the company more profitable. I mean, they reported 3.41 in earnings per share. That was $0. 12 cents better. Than the street was looking for that was up 28 percent year over year, which was more than twice the rate of growth of its sales. And again, a big reason for that is the success that they're having in Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare sales were up 15.2 percent to 18.8 billion. That was because they added 525,000 new Medicare Advantage members. And then the Medicaid business grew about 18 percent to 11.1 billion because they added about 255,000 people. To their roles over the past year,
0: yeah. And on the Optum side of the table, you had revenue of twenty-five point four billion. That was up eleven percent as well. And also, too, Todd, just thinking about. Um, outside of the company, there's some really strong growth drivers, especially on the Medicare side. So, uh, number one, you've got an aging baby boomer population that will continue um, to drive people to many of those Medicaid and Medicare plans as well. But also, you've got for the on the employer sponsored side. Um, you've got really low unemployment. I think we're right at about 3.9% unemployment. That'll continue to be a strong driver for the company and the health insurance industry in general as well. In terms of guidance, where is the company looking in terms of full-year guidance right now? Well,
1: They've been very actively buying back shares, of course, Shan, so that helps the bottom line. Results. Um, you're gonna to want to see if they're gonna able to continue that pace. I think they will. they generate tons of free cash flow. They bought back 15.7 million shares this year alone, spent about 3.6 billion on that. Now they're looking for EPS of twelve dollars and eighty cents this year. That's up from twelve fifty to twelve seventy-five previously. Um, so you know, again, this is a this is a very profitable company. Um, they have very small margins because again, they plow a lot of those premiums back into patient health, uh, yet they, they benefit from scale. They do so much business that they're still able to generate so much money for the bottom line. They actually increased, Shannon, their dividend by about 20% this year because they're, they're generating so much cash flow.
0: Yeah, that dividend hike certainly does not hurt. Um, So you've got two really strong healthcare behemoths reporting strong earnings. Hopefully, this is a great prelude to a good earnings season across the entire segment. Um, On the other side of the break, we're actually going to shift gears and talk a little bit about Todd's interview with GenFit's Management. But first, a quick note from our sponsors. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, they've created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional business process obstacles and delivering something they call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit podcast. Alright, so we're back, Todd. You recently had the unique opportunity to interview a member of the executive team of a smaller biotech that really over the past few years has caught a tremendous amount of attention. From biotech investors, and that company is Genfit. That ticker symbol is G N F T. Um, Genfit, best known for its late stage phase three candidate elafibrinor which is being studied in a disease called NASH. And Todd, really, NASH is quickly becoming the target that many biotechs
1: are striving to hit. Right, Gilead Sciences' uh, success in hepatitis B C. Ah, uh, raking in about 20 billion annualized at at one point after they came up with their new hepatitis C drugs earlier. I think it was 2014 they launched the first one. Really got the attention of uh, researchers who looked at it and said, "Geez, what else can we what else can we tackle in in liver disease?" And you know, Nash is now fast becoming uh, instead of hepatitis C the major cause of liver transplant. It's also um, when you have liver disease, there's also the risk of liver cancer. So, a lot of people are looking at NASH and saying, okay, if we can find a way to tackle this disease, then maybe we can find the next mega blockbuster indication. Um, I, like you said, had the privilege of being able to go down to the Cambridge offices of GenFit. They are a European company, uh, their primary exchange is in Paris, so they're a French company. Um, but they do have ADRs that trade here in the US. They're a little liquid though, uh, so investors should know that. It's a relatively small company. I think their market caps around 800 million. Um, and they're far from the only uh, competitors who are, you know angling to try and, you know come up with a win in NASH. But they are one of the few that has an ongoing phase three trial underway that's expected to read out data in 2019. If the data is good, Then they could file this drug for FDA approval, and you know there are no drugs right now that are approved specifically for NASH. Um, So you know estimates right now are that you'll see about thirty five up to up to I mean these are the pie in the sky estimates right, Shannon, but up to thirty five billion dollar market once these drugs get out there um, uh, get out there. But of course they're going to have to prove their prove their worth in the trials first.
0: Exactly. And what's interesting about Genfit is they've actually got kind of multiple shots on goal here. You mentioned Gilead. They've got a few drugs in the pipeline also going after this indication. But Genfit is actually a little bit different. They obviously have a therapeutic component, Elefibrinol. But also, too, what's really interesting is they also have a diagnostic tool that really, irregardless of which Treatment a patient may go with being able to diagnose uh, these patients earlier, sooner. Um, I think is a key area to win. And so, Todd, tell us a little bit more about their strategy here. How are they expecting to to upend this huge unmet need market?
1: I was really, I was fascinated by this. Really, that the potential for the diagnostic because I hadn't, I hadn't been thinking that way. Like a lot of people, I've been looking at it and saying, okay. Um, you know, Nash typically occurs in, in you know people who are living sedentary lifestyles. So as Western diets have become more prevalent globally, you see more and more people are getting diagnosed with uh, fatty liver disease um, and, and unfortunately, Nash. Um, and you know, I start think I, I, you start spending most of your time thinking not about you know how you diagnose those patients, but instead thinking about how you're going to treat those patients and i think that this gives genfit a kind of a competitive advantage over some of these other companies like gilead and everything that are focusing on the drugs but haven't spent as much time if you will in trying to figure out the diagnostic side of it and the reason i say that shannon is that nash is a silent disease and it's often not diagnosed until people really have advanced liver disease the gold standard for diagnosis is a liver biopsy and liver biopsies are expensive um, they're invasive, and they're usually done by specialists. Okay, this is not a test you're getting done by your primary care physician. So what GenFit has gone out and done is it's been able to identify some biomarkers that show up in the blood of NASH patients. NASH patients, and the idea here is to be able to create a low-cost, easy-to-take test, uh, blood test. That would show you whether or not you're likely to have NASH. Then, you know, if you are, then, you know, theoretically you, you move on to a biopsy or something else. Um, next year, they're going to roll this diagnostic test out into different research um, facilities. And in theory, this is a drug agnostic approach, diagnostic. Okay, so it's not just going to be used with GenFits. Um, drug that's in phase three trials. It could be used with Gilead's drug, it could be used with Intercept's drug, it could be used with Madrigal's drug, it could be used with Viking's drug. All these companies that are racing towards the finish line in Nash could theoretically um, drive demand for diagnostics beyond that specialty um, um, doctor market, specialty office market.
0: Yeah, and looking ahead, I think it's really interesting. So, phase two for GenFit's drug, <clears throat> GenFit's drug, Fibonur, um actually didn't meet its primary endpoint. And there was some nuance there, and I think this is an important point, especially for biotech investors. Um, the company did a post hoc analysis. We've talked a little bit about kind of the problems with that, um, but there was some nuance here because it really came down to study design, which it sounds like for this phase three trial that they're currently running, they've really designed it with that in mind. Todd, so. Tell me, I guess, looking forward, what are some of the key things that you'll be looking at with this Phase 3 trial with that in mind?
1: Yeah, I think that we always have to be very cautious when it comes to uh, post hoc analysis. Um, but we also should remember that this is a indication that there are no approved treatments specifically for it. So Phase one and Phase two truly are, Uh, Much more exploratory than maybe it would be in other more proven out indications. And each one of these companies is targeting a slightly different mechanism of action. You know, so for example, GenFit's targeting, uh, it's a dual agonist of the PPR, all right, which is a pathway that helps to regulate things like the metabolism and. and, and lower the amount of, of fat that's in the bloodstream you know so their their drug is a dual PPR AR but you also have intercept that has an FXR agonist which works slightly differently you have Gilead's serative that's a different drug works a little bit differently as well so all of these companies are kind of got these different drugs they're going through trials and they're using these phase two trials to try and figure out, okay what is the best way to get this drug across the finish line in phase three? So it truly is exploratory. So in that regard, um, maybe I'm willing to give a little bit of a benefit of the doubt to the post hoc analysis because you know, in speaking with management, it does sound like they have a really good grasp of the type of patients that are most likely to respond well to this drug. Um, we'll have to wait and see, right? The interim data that could back a FDA approval. That's not expected until the end of 2019, but you know that's less than a year away, you know, or almost you know about a year away. So you're not waiting too too long to find out whether or not they're onto something. Um, Intercept and Gilead, interestingly, Shannon, their data is going to come out first. They'll have data in the first half of 2019, but you know Gilead is actually not even looking at nash resolution and as the primary endpoint in their phase 3 study they're actually looking at improvement in resolution of fibrosis so you know it really may come down to which ones do you use in different levels of treatment or do you use these because they all have mechanisms of action that are slightly different to use them as combination therapies how that's all going to shake out i don't know so yeah take it with a little bit of a grain of salt cuz you know phase 3 uh, is based on on you know post hoc analysis. Phase two maybe isn't that indicative uh, overall of what's going to happen in phase three.
0: Yeah, and it'll be important too to watch um, also a phase two study in another chronic liver disease indication, uh, PBC, um, which is really marked by progressive destruction of bile ducts within the liver. Um, the read through from that phase two study will obviously have implications from an investor perspective on what that means for the drug as well. And then, too, Todd, you've got to be mindful of cash burn as well because the company may need to do a capital raise pretty soon.
1: I think so. I mean, yes, the PBC data that's expected later on this year. Intercept already has their drug that they're studying, Nash approved in PBC. That's generating out about forty-three million a quarter for Intercept. So you are talking about nine-figure opportunity, I guess, if if you will. Um, they will need to conduct a phase three study, but if the phase two data is good in PBC for Genfit, then maybe that helps validate the mechanism of action a little bit more. Maybe that causes share prices to rally a little bit. If so, I wouldn't be too shocked if they went out and did a capital raise, issued some shares um, to try and bolster up the balance sheet. They're they're certainly not in you know this is not desperate times. They've got 275 million using current exchange rates, euros to dollars right now on the books. Um, but they are going to have to increase their spending unless they do a licensing deal with a, with, or, or something. Um, they're going to have to, to bolster their cash through some other way if they're going to launch this on their own.
0: Yeah, such an interesting space. So much to watch here, Todd, in this particular company uh, with GenFed. It's really companies like these that keep me so intrigued in the biopharma market. Um, And really, we should come back and just do a Nash show. There's so much more we can dig into, really, about the race to approval, um, and really how they differ and how they're similar. Uh, We'll have to put that on the calendars, Todd. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We could absolutely do a 20 to 30 minute show on that alone. On that alone. That's for sure. Well, thanks so much
0: for tuning in this week. That's it for this week's industry focus. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Heather Horton. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on.
2: These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Cineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health is the only company purpose-built to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Sineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Sineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com slash podcast.